This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, and welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Got our uh, group of amazing minds today for an amazingly hard subject to tackle. Um, so we had to bring in all of the brain power we could muster for this one. And so uh, it, it's been a while as usual. We've all been way too busy and, and we record these kind of epically long podcasts. So hopefully it's long enough for, for everyone to, to keep you company for a while if you just really missed us a lot. Um, so anyways, uh, got Zach Dunkel here. What are you rocking, Detroit Pistons, man? Yeah, yeah, I got, got the game on right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I got I to represent Trent up there. So, all right, all right. yeah, yeah. And and Blake Blake Blake's a BFR powerhouse. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah, shares it on social media, man. Uh, <laughs> ben Weatherford and Kyle Kimbrell. Kyle out, and um, I'm about to get burned up again in, in California. Are you safe? Every time I'm good. Yeah, you, the man, wind has actually died down now, um, and I, th- I think they're getting control of that fire. That fire is in a bad spot. It's right by that real famous museum, the Getty. Um, and a lot of expensive homes up in there too. So, yeah, like LeBron James is evacuated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had like to evacuate. Yeah, crazy. Well, pretty crazy. Be safe, man. You guys, y'all need to need to get these fires under control somehow. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's just kind of touch base on what's going on with Orange Recovery Science right now. As normal, lots of research projects going on all over the place. I think we have thirty-eight trials. Some going hot and heavy, some not so fast. Um, the life of research. Um, our our um, femur fracture trial, I think from an enrollment perspective, it's the largest BFR study so far in, in the world. So I think we're at 160-something enrolled subjects um, getting there to our target. So um, we're a little behind. We were hoping to be done by now, but taking trauma patients, it's just kind of catch them as you can. And there's always a million other comorbidities that, that knocks them out um, from being enrolled, but, but it's, it's definitely rocking. So hopefully by the end of next year, we're, we're done with it. Um, where we've all been, I'm, I'm going to just go mine cause it's quick and easy. So I think since the last one, I don't know if I, uh, if we talked about, it, I was at the UFC facility out in Las Vegas, um, which was freaking amazing. So it, it's a, it's a cool place. I mean, my testosterone levels just went up just walking into that joint, you know, and there's, while we're doing the course, we're in the lecture hall and, and the octagons are behind us. So you can just hear the mats being pounded on and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. Um, and then we had a bunch of the Cirque folks from Las Vegas who we work with already that were doing the course with the UFC folks and others from like Kaiser. And that was, that was the Jet Set Rehab guys uh, hosted it, which those are a great group. Any, anybody that wants to go to a fun fun course, go to Jet Set Rehab, and, and they make it like a whole adventure. So nice hotel, happy hour. They got me pretty buzzed and drunk. We're doing shots of tequila after the course. <laughs> and so um, then uh, I'm, I'm heading up in about a week or two, I think, up to, to Cirque du Soleil head, headquarters in Montreal. So that's going to be cool to see um, exactly what happens at the headquarters with, with all their performers. So. It's kind of like combat care, um, the injuries these guys see. Um, so it's going to be going to be very fun. And then what in between? I, I presented at the Texas Physical Therapy Association conference, and the reason I'm mentioning that is I, I think I sent the email out to everybody I know that on my reviews, um, someone just wrote in that cool dude 
Um, that was it. So uh, I just want to, you know, just everyone knows from now on, I'm, I'm cool dude. Um, is what we want to be known as. I, that was probably Melissa Howard, one of our employees that was sitting in on it. Um, but anyways, man, what about you guys? Zach, what's up with you? Um, just been laying low pretty much. Uh, I think the last course I did was up in uh, Garden City, uh, New York, up in Long Island. A uh, really cool facility up there. Pretty big course, but uh, that was pretty much it. And just kind of hanging out for the minute. Um, and then I think in two weeks, I'll be presenting uh, BFR at the Connecticut um, PT Association meeting. So nice. Should be pretty good. Looking forward to that. I'm um, talking about the science and clinical application of BFR. So should be pretty good. And then you're up uh, November 17th in Philadelphia at Vincera again, right? No, Ben's uh, Ben's doing oh, that. Oh, Ben, one. you're doing Vincera. Yeah. All right. Got to trade it off. So yeah. anyways, if you're up in the Philadelphia area, that's uh, just to go to that facility. And I mean, Dr. Meyer's place, he's, he's pretty much the godfather of, of all core injuries. So it's awesome to have them as partners that we work with and, and maybe learn from what they're doing from treating pretty much every athlete in the world that gets a core procedure up at their place. Cool. What about you, Ben? Uh, yeah, I just got back from the Woodlands last uh, weekend before last. I was in Boise, Idaho this, this last weekend. And then next weekend I'll be in Salt Lake and then headed to, headed to Florida after that. Nice. So kind of bouncing around. Nice. And you're at Tampa. Is that at University of Tampa? Yeah, University of Tampa and making that's a, a that's an open course, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyone down in, in that Florida. area, we need more certified providers in the Tampa area. I always get people asking who we have down there sending patients or athletes. And we have a bunch of the teams down there, but we need we need more clinicians. So if you're in that area, please go on and register for that course at Orange Recovery Science. It should be cool. All right. What's up with you, Kyle Kimbrell? Avoiding the fires out here. Um, just had a big course down at uh, USC this past weekend. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, been out, uh, was up in Monterey for a couple of days for the, the, the mil- military course up there through Go Army Ed. Um, they do all the, ling- is it the language or the special languages or linguistics or something? Linguistics, yeah. Linguistics yeah. up there, which was kind of cool to hear about. Um, and uh, just kind of been all around. Was in Milwaukee one weekend and uh, up in San Jose another, out in New Orleans. Um, this weekend doing uh, kind of one of our first courses for a, a university uh, program uh, over at Cal Baptist for their Masters of, uh, Masters of Athletic Training. Um, so that should be pretty fun. Uh, and then headed out to Tucson November 9th um, at a place called Body Central. A gal named Jennifer Allen owns that. They have a little sports residency out there in Tucson. Uh, and then kind of tidying everything up, headed to the Pinnacle Development Center uh, mid-November for a that big place course up there. Super cool. That's where Sporting KC, yeah, yeah. That place is awesome. That's where the men's national soccer team, uh, they're housed there as well as Sporting KC. Uh, yeah. That place is awesome. Yeah. So anyone in, in definitely in Arizona, get out to Body Central and then yeah. also in, in Kansas City. Just go look at that Pinnacle website. Um, you got U.S. Yeah, soccer yeah. and Sporting KC. And some of these courses, and we're always at these like awesome places. Half the fun of the course is, well, when I'm there, it's just listening to me talk. But also, um, you know, <laughs> to check the cool out these, dude. these badass facilities. <laughs> yeah, 
I, I, I'm getting shirts printed that on the back instead of under deep that says "Cool Dude." Cool dude. Um, yeah. Well, you can't you can't leave out the fact that you got told you look like Iron Man, but that's dude more than one Iron Man and, and a cool dude. Oh no! I so. shaved the beard once I heard that, and I, I, yeah. I do, it's so hard to do a goatee like he does, man. He must have professional people do it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then my wife will bring me back down to earth and tell me I'm just a dumbass. So. No, but no, it's all good. Um, and I just want to throw it out, man. We've been doing a ton um, globally. So we just finished up courses in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, Susan, who, who's our trainer from Vancouver, was out there and was, was fighting riots in Hong Kong um, and, yeah. and going around. But um, um, everything was good and safe and, and had a great course out there and a great course in Taiwan. November 5th, I, I think it's still it's ready to go, right? Ben, Austria is good to go. Yep. Um, so if you're in that area, is that, that one's going to be in English, right? Or German? That'll be in German. In German. Okay. So yep. speak of the Deutsch, um, or however you say it, <laughs> there's that course. Um, <laughs> November 16th, if you want it more German, um, we have our partnership with Atos Orthopark. Um, Alex Franz, who's um, going to be on one of the papers we might talk about today, is a, is a really great guy, super smart, does a bunch of BFR and ischemic preconditioning research, is teaching that one. November 24th, we have signed an agreement with the Ability Group in Italy. So we're going to have our first course in Venice, Italy. Luke Hughes is teaching that one. November 30th, Luke's doing another one in London. And then November 30th in Vancouver. So, man, we're, we're getting like, it's like freaking NATO now. It's, it's awesome. So, cool. Okay, so let's get into this. I don't, so I was trying to, you know, Kyle, you said we've never done an ischemic preconditioning podcast. And we've never done a deep dive, but when Stephen and I talked, Stephen did go into it somewhat. So today we are going to actually kind of really peel the onion and go deep, deep, deep into what's called ischemic preconditioning or remote ischemic preconditioning. And so um, <coughs> blood flow restriction has got a lot of interest, lots of papers being published, lots of studies. Ischemic preconditioning and remote ischemic preconditioning probably has more interest um, and, and more papers coming out. And, and so I, I, I'm going to set it up and just kind of do the history of this because I always like to go back and figure out where things come from. And so ischemic preconditioning is basically brief bouts of ischemia to see if you can somehow have a protective effect on, on an organ. And so this all started in, in, in 1986 where they were looking at a cardiac model and wanted to see, uh, we're just looking to see if they did these ischemic bouts looking at the, at the damage they would do to the heart. And they were expecting ATP to, to basically start to go down as they saw heart damage happen after the first set it did. And then the next three rounds of it where they were planning on really continuing to hurt the heart, it didn't happen. And so that was a little bit surprising. And so Dr. Murray um, took that study and it wasn't his study, but he kind of extrapolated from it. And in, in that same year in 86, He's up at WashU. He looked at, okay, it seemed like somehow it didn't get worse. It maybe it was even protective if you had this brief about of ischemia when they clamped the artery off on the heart, the, the left um, anterior descending um, artery, LAD, that it, it, it protected the heart from, from ischemic damage. So he clamped off the LAD and then put the, a dog heart 
into basically ischemic death where it should die off. And in, in the dogs where they clamped off the artery, they had a decrease in the infarct size by 75%. And so I can't remember exactly what his protocol was, but I, I think it was three, three to four rounds of five minutes. And we're gonna go through this over and over, but that's typically what we see anywhere from about three to five different rounds of five minutes of full occlusion with a brief rest and then five minutes of occlusion again, um, repeated for multiple bouts. And so that was interesting. So if you put a clamp and you completely cut off the artery, it somehow spared the heart. And that kicked off all sorts of animal studies that kept showing in animal data that it had a protective effect. And they called this ischemic preconditioning. And then in 1993, kind of the next big step happened um, at the Heart Institute of LA when, when researchers said, well, let's see if you have to be right there where the problem is, or can you clamp off another area? So they clamped off the right side of the heart and it protected the left side of the heart from infarction damage. So they termed that remote ischemic preconditioning. And, and really, if we look at it now, we, we kind of call that peri-ischemic preconditioning because it was in the general area, but it wasn't directly tied to the blood flow at the area of damage. Then kind of the next leap happened in 2002 when the Hospital of Sick Children in Toronto, which that's kind of, I think that's a terrible name for a kid's hospital. You know, hey, we're going to the Hospital of Sick Children today, Kindle. Um, and, and I actually visited there. It's, it's actually an epic hospital. I, when I was there at the NHL Combine, I went by there um, and got like a little brief tour. That's the hospital where they, they discovered the gene for cystic fibrosis. They, they, do, they um, did the first in utero um, surgeries and they still do that to this day where they, they'll, they'll fix kids problems while they're still in the womb. Um, so a really big institute. What they did was um, they did um, ischemic, remote ischemic preconditioning, but they did it onto the limbs this time in an animal model. And so this was like, wow, now it's really going far away that if you do it on a limb, it protected the heart. And so then the next big leap happened in 2006 same at the Sick Children um, Hospital in Toronto. And that was the first human trial where they did remote ischemic preconditioning. And on kids, they showed if they did this on a limb, that it was able to protect the kids' hearts. They had less uh, biomarkers for heart damage after their, after their heart surgeries. And they also had less needs for supportive drugs after that. So that's kind of this arc. And now you see, you know, there's you know, like over a thousand papers published um, I read one study, there's, there's been 10,000 subjects plus that have gone through these trials with 20,000 that are enrolled currently in it. So there's a lot of medical interest. So, so we've kind of stole this from the medical side of the house. And we're gonna talk about maybe what it can do for skeletal muscle tissue today. There was interesting, a couple of things that it said on it. Uh, remote ischemic preconditioning mimics the cardioprotective effects of exercise. So basically it's a way to make your body think you're going into some strenuous exercise which that we know has a protective effect. Um, it's also been termed exercise in a device. So that's one way to think about it. So anything on the history there that I've missed you guys or y'all wanna add before we start getting into maybe what the mechanisms are and the difference between IPC and RIPC are? I think you nailed it, but I, I think I'm hearing that I can just do this IPC stuff and not do exercise. Exercise in a device, baby. Yeah. <laughs> no, Ben, you need a lot of exercise, I think. I, I agree. Well, I'll use any excuse I can to get out of it, though. Let me say, so this, you know, again, it started in, a, in an animal model. And there's a study, I mentioned it today in our emails back and forth, 
that's going on right now, a stroke trial over in China um, that basically within 48 hours of you having a stroke, they get RIPC on you or you get randomized to the control group um, to see if, if they have uh, a neuroprotective effect um, and less complications from stroke. And that's going to be an, uh, an 1800 subject trial. So almost a 2000 subject trial um, is where the size of these studies are at this point. Um, and they're, they're expecting to have that trial done in, in early 2021. So we're definitely seeing a lot of funding, and a lot of big powerhouse studies, multi-center studies like that going towards it. So how the hell does this work? That's the question that we kind of want to dig into because everybody wants to know mechanism. So, so Zach, you're Mr. Mechanism. Why don't we go in? What's your number one mechanism you think first of why this works? I, I, I think there's. I a, think we can pretty... all answer that for Zach. <laughs> 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 I, was, I would just back up one second, and this kind of ties in with the history there, Johnny, and how we kind of move this into human, um, what make this relevant to humans, is a lot of the early data, it was all um, kind of – preventative or preconditioning and it's kind of like now what you're talking about where you know we can maybe do ischemic per conditioning while someone is um ischemic due to a heart attack or due to a stroke mm -hmm. and then you know this study that you're just talking about now coming out of china you know there there's this potential that we can actually even have a similar effect um, with post conditioning. So once someone comes out of the ischemic event and that's what makes it a lot more relevant to humans because with animal models, you know, we would literally, we have to really only apply this in a surgical setting or when someone's going to voluntarily have a reduction of blood flow. So maybe having a stent put in the heart or a bypass or things like that. So I think it kind of opens up the, the possibility of things on the medical side yeah. with wh where things are going. Yeah, because we're always captioning it after the events. And, um, right, yeah. We can't predict when someone's going to have a stroke or have a heart attack. So. And to see a reversal of damage, which would be huge, or a blunting of damage in organs. I mean, this was from a talk that Jamie Burr did. Um, you know, it's a morbid thought, but, I mean, it's even to this point. If someone basically is dying or going to be dead, um, even in the ambulance ride or when they first get to the hospital, doing remote ischemic preconditioning just to make sure their organs are viable um, for, for transplants um, to harvest their organs, uh, which, which is interesting. So basically, right. this is a stimulus that becomes, it, it basically prepares your body for something bad, or if something bad has happened, it kind of toughens everything up to make sure that it, the body can do whatever it can to protect everything that's important to it. So what, what do you think are some mechanisms in or behind it? Yeah, I think one of the big mechanisms is what's called a humoral effect. And what this so it's, literally so it's means. funny. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it is, it's, it's real funny when you think about, you know, kind of the stuff that they've done to actually show this is, is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, so what humoral means is basically the protective effect is just carried within the blood. Um, so it's released by the ischemic tissue. So whether that be, you know, um, renal tissue or, you know, kind of for our purposes with a tourniquet, we put it on a limb and, and from there it, it kind of, the system is released this, um, into the bloodstream and then it carries a protective mechanism to the remote organ that has a subsequent, um, ischemic event. Yeah. Um, 
and they've looked at this a, a few different ways. Um, one of the most fascinating studies was they did uh, blood transfusions with rabbits. And so what they did was um, kind of no IPC or no conditioning to um, a group of rabbits. And then they just did a blood transfusion. Both rabbits would ultimately end up going through about 60 minutes of a coronary artery occlusion. Um, and then in a, in a separate group, they had one rabbit that received um, the IPC stimulus. Um, and then they were, uh, that blood was transfused into a naive rabbit. So a rabbit that did not um, receive an IPC stimulus. From there, again, both rabbits receive about 60 minutes um, of coronary artery occlusion. And what we see is a significant attenuation in the uh, infarct size um, uh, in, in both rabbits that received or had the ischemic stimulus. So what that meant or what that means is the rabbit that was ischemically conditioned, um, they had about a 3.7% infarct size of the left ventricle. And then the blood that was transfused from that rabbit into the naive rabbit had about a 4.1% um, infarct size of the left ventricle. Um, you compare that to the control groups that did not receive any stimulus, um, the infarct size was about 16%. It's crazy, man. I, I love that study. The second one, I'm going to talk about the, the human to the animal. Um, right. So that's crazy. I mean, so the humoral, I mean, that's, that's as much evidence for a humoral right there, mechanistically. I mean, it's yeah, not, it's, it's pretty solid, you know, because basically you, you take a look at that and whether, as long as you received blood from a conditioned animal you receive the protective effect yeah um so yeah we so we definitely see that and i think that's a pretty strong um you know kind of evidence to support that um so and we need, then, we need to get blood from like bodybuilders and then give it to people that have diabetes and we'll just solve the world's problems right there well as long as they've had ischemic preconditioning and it's, it's <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so going to the next one, Zach, the, the animal to human or human to animal. Yeah, so, so from there then, so that was within the same species. So then what they wanted to do was, you know, look and see if we can have a, a similar effect going across species. And so what they did was um, they conditioned humans. So they have one group that received blood from unconditioned humans and then transfused that into rabbits. And then... Um, do a prolonged period of coronary artery occlusion again. And then what we see is uh, a, a group of humans received um, uh, an ischemic stimulus uh, via uh, to the arm. And then that blood was transfused into the rabbit. And we see again, the protective mechanism is similar to as if the rabbit actually received the conditioning stimulus. Um, so it was, it, it's again, like that to me just really kind of confirms that there is something that is just carried within the bloodstream when we can protect a naive animal um, or someone that did not receive the stimulus as long as they receive um, blood from a conditioned um, animal or human. And we're going to go over like best kind of practices, but that right there is 100%. People always are asking, is this a systemic effect or whatever term you want to use? then it, it, it doesn't matter where you do it, where you're going after. If it's, humor, if it's a humoral response, you do it on the leg, you know, because I had one of the NFL teams with their quarterback. They wanted to do some IPC stuff for his arm. 
you know, when they were asking, does it have to be on his arm? Because, you know, they were a little worried about getting the tourniquet on his arm after the game. And it's like, and I, I think from what we know, you're probably fine just doing it on the leg, um, especially if you're really feeling the, the humoral response is, is kind of what it is. Yeah, so we'll we'll take a look, I think, a little bit later. Um, but I think there's definitely a, a volume of tissue, volume of blood flow that's being occluded that's going to have an effect. So you, you may actually have a greater response um, if you're looking to, um, you know, to do something in the arm if you actually condition the legs. And, um, and with that being said, you know, because, again, one of the mechanisms or one of the theories is, you know, within the windows is we have these two windows. Yeah. Um, which is kind of getting off topic for the, yeah. the mechanisms. We'll just save that for a little bit later. Okay. So tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, because, you know, I see humoral, and Kyle and I talked about this, we see humoral, we see systemic being thrown around as if they're different things almost, but it, it, we're going to say that that's kind of synonymous. We're not really looking at different things. If you're saying humoral or systemic, it should be the same. It's just. Yeah, I would, I would say the, the one thing that maybe potentially separates the two is the actual kind of, um, what is activated within each. So I think like with systemic, a lot of it tends to go towards like an inflammatory um, suppression or upregulation of anti-inflammatory markers, things like that. But when you're talking about the humoral response, you're looking more, it, it's been looked at as from an, an opiate response or an endocannabinoid um, response to produce the protective mechanism. But all in all, you know, I think that's more semantics than anything right. else. I, it, it's going to be a systemic response. Yeah. It's going to be bloodborne. It's gonna, yeah. Right. And you get the physiology side of the house that sometimes gets a little worked up with systemic when you're talking about physiological pathways from a strength and hypertrophy perspective. But right. then from a medical side, it's like, no, we're, sometimes this is totally different things that we're looking at here. And, and this, yeah. you know, this kind of, organ and cardio and skeletal muscle protection um, is something that's probably within the bloodstream, along with a million other probably things we're going to talk about. Right. So when, when you said endocannaboid, that's Kyle actually perked up, you know, because he's out in California and he thought you were yeah. talking about Kyle. Ed, 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 does that have Ed CBD in it or yeah. something <laughs> like that? Like, okay. So what another mechanism then that, that you think is kind of a, a high target? Yeah, the other one that's pretty interesting is the neural response. And, and this is kind of was a little bit conflicted when it first came out. Basically, it was based off of, you know, if we give a ganglion blocker um, and we, we condition an animal, but then um, give it a ganglion blocker as well. So to inhibit a, a, a neural response, it actually abolishes the, uh, the protective mechanism to the heart. Um, there was a, a conflicting study that came out with that that didn't really show that response. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, aside from a ganglion response, um, the, the potential that, that you have then other mechanisms are um, through bradykinin and adenosin. Mm -hmm. And so, um, bradykinin is released from uh, sensory nerves from, uh, during the preconditioning bout. Um, and uh, they also has a, it has a vasodilation effect as well. And so they think maybe that's the protective mechanism that's conveyed to the heart because when uh, a Brady-Kinnon antagonist um, is delivered, I believe it's, uh, it's called HOE140, 
um, it actually abolishes the protective response from conditioning. Um, and then also when um, Brady Cannon was actually interfused or yeah, uh, interfused into the uh, mesenteric artery, it produced the same protective mechanism as if the uh, animal received ischemic conditioning. So you basically can have a, a protective uh, mechanism from the remote ischemic conditioning, or if you deliver, uh, uh, if you infuse uh, Brady Kinnon into the artery, it has the same effect. So that led authors to believe that there's this neural response delivered from Brady Kinnon. Um, a dentist, a denison is, is was kind of came about by a similar mechanism. Um, it went, when an, an antagonist to an, a denison was delivered, it abolished the uh, remote effects um, from preconditioning. Then, when a denison was delivered into the femoral artery, it produced the same response as if the individual had just received their remote ischemic conditioning. Right. So. Those two mechanisms, and then the final um, kind of mechanism from this neural system is from what's called um, calpenes, or um, I'm sorry, CGRP. And CGRP um, basically uh, was uh, came about through calcitonin, and which is sensitive. It, it's a it's a nerve response, and when that was inhibited, inhibited, it uh, blocked the uh, remote ischemic uh, response as well. So, and when um, uh, CGRP was stimulated, um, it produced the same protective mechanism as um, the remote ischemic conditioning did. So, um, a lot of the neural pathway is based off of if we block it, we see an abolishment. But if we um, do something that is an agonist or just something that produces that um, neurotransmitter, bradycanin, adenosin, what have you, um, it produces the same effect with uh, as remote ischemic conditioning does. And you, and you see some of the papers even mention that an intact nervous system is yeah. has to be there for this to have an effect. Right. Right. So interesting. And then what about the pain side? So do you feel yeah. like this? Or a tolerance issue? You know, some people are like, well, you know, maybe from what we're going to talk about later with orthopedics and, and performance, but, you know, an actual pain inhibition with this. Yeah, I, I think, again, it goes a lot more to the um, to the humoral effect because, you know, you take a look at the endocannabinoid system. Um, it's a CB2 receptor, which has specifically been targeted with the heart. And if you take a look at a lot of the end endocannabinoid research, it's a CB2 receptor that they're trying to target with different types of pain. Um, and so, you know, two of the kind of really ischemic conditioning pain studies that have been done um, had, was one in orthopedic surgery with uh, total knee replacements. And then the second was a gallbladder surgery. Mm -hmm. And so both of those um, one bout five minutes of ischemia in pre-op and then five minutes reperfusion reinflate the tourniquet for the total knee replacement and then did the surgery um, we don't see much of a change at all you know within the first 24 hours uh, but from 24 hours and then again at 48 hours is when they did their second follow-up we see a significant reduction in pain with um, specifically with activities or with exercise mm -hmm. um, and I would say the big 
thing and why this is really relevant with um, what we do in physical therapy is because this is once the, the uh, they removed the uh, nerve block. Yeah. Um, so the nerve block was removed and we still have a significantly greater reduction in pain. You see uh, a similar mechanism with the gallbladder study. Um, again, one bout, five minutes of ischemia, deflate the tourniquet, went ahead and did the surgery. And what they actually found in the gallbladder study was there was less morphine used and then significantly less pain at 24 hours was the only follow-up they did there. Um, just pain at rest, pain during a deep breath, as well as pain during a hard cough. Yeah. Um, so you can have a pretty good um, uh, response with that. Um, and, you know, to me, given, you know, the opiate response that you're, that is believed to happen with the humoral mechanism as well as the endocannabinoid um, receptors, to, to me, that's where I think that kind of goes to. Very low risk, very easy to apply. And if, if we are actually seeing these pathways being released, it's pretty powerful. Super um, easy yeah. to just do in clinic, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I just envision this every, at the end of every course, every course now I do like Kyle's fantasy land where I just kind of go off. You have no idea. You had no idea what's <laughs> happening in these courses, Johnny. You, but I, but I, you know, I think, you know, eventually you kind of see people saying, look, you know, here's our ACL program, right? And one component of that could very easily be day before surgery, you're in office, you know, we do this IPC thing and you're going to have some less pain just because we did this yeah. kind of deep hypoxia thing. Or even better, and we'll talk about it. Rehab. But basically blood flow restriction, IPC with exercise. And I, and I know there'll probably even be a bigger yep. response. So yep. Yeah. Well, I had my gallbladder removed and I'll tell you, it sucked ass. Um, the pain did suck at the start, but my doctor told me, do not take in any fat, you know, like at all, because it'll, it'll, it'll just go right through you. But dude, I was so sick of eating just like bread and potatoes so i ate a potato and i put one little half pad of butter on it and i just started dating my wife and i swear to god within five seconds I almost shit myself um, <laughs> <laughs> they need to have something to <laughs> to control that that episode i couldn't run in the bathroom fast enough man so the pain to you compare to the embarrassment of uh, almost shitting yourself in front of your girlfriend that's a sim similar experience when someone tried to get me to try bulletproof coffee for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Any other, any other mechanisms? I mean, one of the other ones is the whole, the NO cascade. Um, so I, I don't know how much you guys have looked into that as well. And I, and I guess the one thing to think about is not only is the, the occlusion um, or the ischemia, something that causes cell death when we're looking at these heart studies, but it's the actual reperfusion, which might cause more death. So in, in heart surgery, when they unclamp is when there's this massive reperfusion of blood and, and that, that basically kills the cells um, and causes kidney failure and all sorts of things like that. And so it's just kind of a rush of, of everything bad going into the cell and primarily into the mitochondria. Um, but whenever you, when you do the IPC stimulus, you get the reduction in free radicals, the ROS, but then you also get upregulation of, of NO, nitric oxide, which seems to have this endothelial protective effect as well. 
So I know, I know I, I listened to a cardiac talk from one of their conferences on it. And um, that was really a big pathway they were talking about. So. Yeah, I think um, with that, it kind of gets into the windows. And when we start to see these responses occur, um, you know, I think when you look at whether cardiac surgery or like the earliest models of what they're actually doing and the changes that they see, um, it, it's more going to be that first window. And within that, it's like you said, really the target's the mitochondria. Um, and the whole goal is to maintain aerobic respiration for as long as possible. Um, and specifically, um, you, you kind of hit on that. It's the buildup of reactive oxygen species or these oxidative stress within the tissue. You also get an abundance of calcium. Um, largely that's going to be, you know, a, a problem with, um, potassium ATPase pumps aren't able to maintain the cellular integrity. So at that point, you know, you start getting this, um, uncontrolled influx of calcium into the cell. That's going to further stress the cell out. You have an overreaction of the, um, sodium calcium exchanger at that point in time, you know, we can't pump calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And then calcium is ultimately what contributes to a lot of cell death and cell damage right um and then once like it's just like you said once you either um release the tourniquet or i mean because it's the same thing as with um with orthopedic surgeries yeah, yeah. yeah it's the same exact thing i mean you have a tourniquet on for you know an hour or longer at 330 to um you know millimeters of mercury you're going to get a rush of that, that free radicals, reactive oxygen species and calcium. It's going to further, further stress the tissue um, and kind of go on to this cascade of cell damage, ultimately maybe cell death. Right, right. And that's what we don't talk about. You know, a lot of the problems we might have postoperatively is from these reperfusion injuries. Um, and yeah, even Alan, Alan Kaysen showed capillary beds after ACL surgery are significantly decreased just from the reperfusion damage from the surgery which takes out your quad endurance, you know? So yeah. And he five rounds of this with exercise significantly protected against that. Um, so they had improved quad endurance at that four week time point. So, and you know, a classic paper from Dr. Noakes um, at the IOC conference, like in 2000 or something, you know, he basically pointed out the, and I, and I think Jeremy's tweet today about, uh, you know, where blood goes with fatigue. I didn't really read the yeah. paper, but it was kind of timely because I was thinking about it, you know, Exercise, intense exercise is also ischemic reperfusion injuries um, that you have from the exercise alone as well. Um, so a lot of the muscle damage, and I think we'll talk about, you know, Stevens and maybe Beaven's paper that we showed blunting of muscle damage after something strenuous if you did this. You know, I, I really feel like maybe that NO cascade and, and the free radical reduction is, is kind of maybe why we saw that. Um, We'll get into that a little bit when we start talking about the mechanisms, or not the mechanisms, but application. Okay, anything else y'all can think of before we talk about these windows? I think we hit it. That felt very sciencey, so that was good. I feel smarter just from listening to you on that, Zach. So, what about windows? So, okay, let's let's say you know that's the question. When should I do this? Should I do this if I got a basketball player who's got a game and I want to maybe condition him to improve his performance? or maybe get this analgesic effect. Um, you have to do it an hour before the game, two hours before the game, 10 minutes before the game, after the game, 24 hours later. What are the windows we know with IPC? 
Yeah, so we kind of just hit on it a little bit. Um, so we have these basically two windows. The first window is a rel relatively acute window, and you're looking to manipulate respiration, and, you know, aerobic or cellular. Um, and uh, second window. Uh, oh, that window is about two hours, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's about you know two to four hours long, and then you know from there until about twenty four hours out, it's like you did absolutely nothing. There is no benefit um, to doing IPC or remote ischemic conditioning, yeah. and then at uh, at twenty four hours, you have this second window, and it appears that it's a much more kind of uh, it's a it's much stronger window. Uh, and it lasts for about 72 hours. Right. There's certain things that are being manipulated in, in each window. Um, so kind of like we were talking about, you know, with cardiac surgery and things like that, you're really just looking in that first window to manipulate ion channel permeability. And I really think the specifically it's potassium um, ion channels is what you're trying to manipulate. And you're trying to maintain aerobic respiration for as long of a period of time as you can. Um, before going into anaerobic respiration. Um, from, you know, the IPC perspective, why that's important is if you're in an ischemic situation, whether that's from a tourniquet, um, anaerobic um, athletic performances, uh, you know, or a heart attack or a stroke, um, you know, as soon as you go into an anaerobic respiratory state, you're eventually going to run out of um, glycolytic substrates. And at that point in time, that's when everything bad starts to happen. You know, the pH starts to plummet, the tissue becomes acidic, you know, you can't kind of control potassium or um, calcium anymore. And then that's the cascade that starts. So within that first window, it's ion channel permeability. The, um, the second window is where you're really starting to look at different, um, genetic markers that you're trying to manipulate and i think this is where things go into we were talking before from a systemic standpoint in this kind of you know humoral mechanism versus a systemic response and it's this systemic response that happens in this second window specifically a lot of what of our of our interest is going to be inflammatory markers mm -hmm. um, specifically interleukin 1b and then interleukin 6 which are pro-inflammatory markers um, and then interleukin 10, which is an anti-inflammatory marker. Uh, the, the IPC research tends to indicate that um, we can downregulate or suppress pro-inflammatory markers, so interleukin 1 and 6, and then upregulate these anti-inflammatory markers. Um, where all this may actually come into play with an athlete um, is we may be able to get them back um, performing at a higher level a little bit faster or back to baseline faster. Um, and, you know, Kyle can chime in here because we've had some talk about whether this is good, bad, you know, when we do this for long periods of time and, and what have you. I think from a muscle standpoint, it may not be a good thing, but depends on what the goal is that you're trying to target. Um, so that's where, um, again, VEGF we see reg upregulated in this second window as well. So, Zach, I think, you know, when you say genetic, I think maybe some of our listeners might think one thing, but I think we maybe we meet another thing. Because if you hear genetic, I think some of us might draw the conclusion like there might be some groups of people who genetically are going to respond to this, but others who would not. But we're really more talking gene expression, that kind of right. thing. Not so much yeah. like you have the, these genetics, so you're going to respond and this other person may not because they don't have. Yeah, yeah. So, 
so we're talking about gene expression, um, changes in transcription, things like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's tough because you know those words can kind of mean a couple of different things. But it's a good um, point. I mean, it's it's timely here. What three weeks ago, the Nobel Prize was given to three physiologists for the Nobel Prize in physiology, one from Oxford, one from Hopkins, and one from Harvard for their work in hypoxia and what it does for gene expression, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's just kind of amazing stuff these guys have done over decades that if you take down the oxygen availability, gene expression can be significantly manipulated. And, and we're seeing that at these 24, and then it goes on for almost two more days. Um, gene expression is, is, is changed. And that's, you know, like maybe this massive stroke trial, you know, they start at 48 hours within the, the injury, do it repetitively, do it twice a day for, for weeks, um, trying to get into these gene expression windows and, and neuroprotection. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we take a look at that pain study and whatnot, I mean, I, I think that's really what's kind of going on right there. We're, we're fitting in that second window. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you know, depending on the individual that's, that's, you know, whoever's listening is in your mind, it really depends on what you want to target as to when you would want to do this. Um, you know, if you want to try to impact someone's performance, we'll, we'll talk in a, in a few minutes about, you know, where this may fit in for performance, but more than likely, if you're going to try to imp improve performance, you're going to do it relatively right before the event. It, it needs to be done. You know, most studies are done immediately before there was one running paper that was done about 45 minutes before, but it needs to be done very soon. Um, prior to the event, um, versus then if you're looking maybe, you know, to impact someone's recovery, you know, if, if you're talking in a collegiate setting or even, um, probably more likely in a professional setting with baseball um, and basketball, most, most notably guys that are going to play day in and day out. It may be beneficial for them, you know, that, that you do this, you know, maybe the day prior for a pitcher, we'll say you do this a day prior. Um, and then when he, he starts and he throws, he's going to have this kind of second window already primed, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and he'll be ready to go from there. Um, and then when it comes to the frequency, um, I, I don't know. I don't think that, you know, within a 24-hour period, I don't think that you're going to necessarily get, to, or I should say within a 12-hour period, I don't think you're going to get any added benefit from doing it in the morning and then doing it in the afternoon or evening. Um, however, with that said, over a 24-hour period, maybe you do it, um, you, you take an example of uh, – you know, someone who's going to play day in and day out, maybe it's a basketball player or what have you, maybe they do it the day before the game and then they want a little added boost the day of the game and then you do it the day of the game. So that may fit within a 24 hour window, but it's, you're not going to get any added benefit doing it, you know, within the same say 12 hours. Yeah. Well, I know we're about to get to this and, and this is, you know, become a trigger word for, for some of us, but looking at this, you know, potential for recovery, you know, if, for those sports that what we talk about. What the hell does that about, mean, Ben? And I know it's in our, it's in the company name, but we, we don't like to talk about it. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it's these these high-volume sports of, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey, you know, you got these short windows between games where it's going to be one day or two days, three days. You know, if you are doing it for recovery, it really seems like, you know, if you do this ischemic post-conditioning acutely after, you're pretty much going to be preconditioning for the next bout. It's for the next I mean, I mean yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. For that, you know, 24 to 72 hour window, you're going to have another game, yeah. you know, and then it's a question of does that, you know, acutely before stimulus, that preconditioning help you a little bit further? And I'm sure it really depends on what are you looking for? Yeah. You know, and, well, and what is you, what is your role as a, as an athlete? Yeah. What I, and like Zach said, so for performance right now, it really looks like it needs to be within that two hour window probably. And, and right. Josh Slice's thesis I mean, they looked at that for performance on a one-time event. You know, I think it was a, like a wind gate. If you did it 24 or 48 hours before and then did it within the two hour window before, I think they did it like 10 minutes before the event. It was no different than if they just did it 10 minutes before the event for performance now, but we have lots of anecdotals from all these teams that, yeah, these guys feel much better the next day or two days later. Um, and that's what a lot of these studies don't look at is this kind of like, well, maybe for performance on that one event, it didn't work, but maybe the two days later, um, is where we're seeing a lot of the reports of, of these athletes are feeling much better. And the other thing from an IPC thing that we see that isn't really looked at the literature is, is all the, you know, and we know some of the guys doing it right now in these baseball games going on pregame, they, they feel like their limbs are more alive. You know, that's, that's right. There's some teams still playing baseball right now, isn't there, oh, Johnny? Okay. Uh, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is, isn't there? Yeah. But you know, we hear that over and over. I almost like, forgot about man, that. Our, our guys do it, and it's like he's a, my, his arm feels like it's freaking feels great, or his legs just feel like they're they're woke. You know, our our friends out there in L.A., Kyle in the NFL, they talk with. He's talking yeah. about all these guys that do it, and they're just like, man, their their legs just feel awesome, and, and they need it right before the game. And, and you know, athletes you never know, but we hear it over and over and over. So that's something that might be hard to measure, um, but we definitely hear it. And then the other thing is the analgesic effect. So if you're wanting analgesia, you need to do this IPC and probably IPC with exercise or or BFR um, right in that two hour window. Well, and, and you wonder, you know, and I'm sure this has been looked at some, but maybe not a ton is, you know, what is the cumulative effect of these multiple bouts over an extended period of time? You know, if you're looking at somebody that's been doing this regularly, as opposed to somebody that's just doing it, you know, here and there, um, you know, I think of it probably like an exercise stimulus where, you know, there probably is more of a cumulative effect than just what's happening acutely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, at some point too, you wonder, you just, like, I, I think, with the IPC stuff on the recovery side of things, you know, I wonder how many times a week can you really realize that benefit? And, and is there a downside to doing it too much also, you know, because I mean, at the, in the end, kind of where Zach was going a bit earlier, the conversations we've had, you know, there's data, good data to say repeated cold water immersion after resistance training blunts hypertrophy. Yeah. Um, you know, and so yeah, yeah. limiting those responses after, um, a, a, you know, an intense activity could potentially, you know, not be the best thing to do all the time. You know, I think in, in your sports like football, where it's like once a week uh, or soccer, where it's one, maybe two times a week could make a ton of sense after every freaking game, you know, just to kind of bounce back, feel fresh for the next day. But you know, if you're talking about a catcher, you know, or, a, you know, a shortstop and they're having to play 162 games that that chronic load that they're building from that could be really, really important. And you might not want to 
just totally shut that off. And so you might need to pick your spots. And if I just don't know that we know when and how much, that's the hard thing about all this. I think that we need to figure well, out. And hopefully from the MLB study, you know, we, it's a couple times a week mm-hmm. right now, eight weeks. So that's fairly Is that what they're doing? to see, you know, kind of, and, and one of those teams that's in the study is doing pretty damn well right now. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's at least, it's not nearly the entire season, but it, it, it maybe will give us a snapshot of seeing a controlled model of kind of what's going on. Um, so let's talk about kind of best practice. So what do we know? And and so we can explain because sometimes we kind of get deep into science and don't kind of step back, explain exactly how you would do this. How, how long do you have to do it? How many sets and reps, how much occlusion, um, and you know, we're not going to worry about the windows right now. So what's, what's best practice? Um, yeah, so um, kind of best practices, you know, s- uh, hovering around like three cycles when it's been looked at, um, adding a fourth cycle didn't really offer any additional benefit. If anything, three cycles look to be a, a little bit uh, superior to four cycles. Um, and then five minutes of ischemia. And by five minutes of ischemia, we re- we mean 100% limb occlusion pressure. Um, and where that really kind of comes down to is, you know, when all the kind of physiologic data for that, they were putting clamps on arteries. So you're, you're completely blocking the blood flow. There's not like, okay, we'll let a little bit trickle in. No, it's, you know, you, you clamp the LAD or the circumflex artery, the mesenteric artery, whatever it may be, you're putting a physiologic clamp on it. Which is um, a so fatal that, flaw in all these studies right now, right? Right. It is. It's 220. Yeah. You know, one of the things that they'll do is, is they'll just straight up do 220. Some use nears to take a look and see how, if there's actually perfusion going past or not others, you know, just, well, they just base it off 220 because that's what so-and-so did in the previous study. Well, Um, pulse ox or, you know, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's, and, and so that cardiology talk I heard on it, you know, the, the guy speaking is like, all these animal studies, they almost always show this amazing effect. And in the human models, it's mixed. You know, some of them are great, some of them aren't. Some of them are great, some of them aren't. And it's like, you look at the animal studies, they're clamping the artery off. You got 100% occlusion. And then the human models, they put a freaking blood pressure cuff on. Right. And take it to 200 to 220. In, in the leg sometimes, my limb occlusion with a wide cuff is like 280. I'm freaking yoked, yo. <laughs> but for real so if you do 200 on me you're not I'm, I'm not even at full occlusion and you're using a blood pressure cuff which won't hold the pressure they're made to lose pressure so it's just going to drift down so you got these like crazy well-funded high-powered trials and and they're wondering why they're not seeing in all the studies the same results in the animal model and so the occlusion's not there so okay first point three rounds looks pretty superior five minutes right like the kind of go-to and and that, and that was based off a of systematic review so it wasn't you know just yeah. cherry picking one article whatever it was a yeah. systematic review and so yeah that's what they found was you know it has to be more than two yeah. um and when we go between three to four it really looks like three has a slight edge and there's definitely no advantage to four and so you know there you're looking at you know that's that saves you at least 10 minutes and five minutes um, so, seems to be equal on all. And, 
and, and that's what I was going to say. So uh, when we say five minutes of ischemia, it's five minutes of 100% limb occlusion pressure. There's no blood flow going into that limb for five minutes. And then there's an equal period of reperfusion. So five, five minutes of reperfusion. Right. Um, and this is completely passive, you know, so whether, you know, their Facebook live, Instagram, Tinder, whatever they do is what they do. They're, there's no exercise with this. They're just kind of hanging out. Yeah. So, um, hundred percent occlusion, three rounds, five minutes equal on off looks like best practice right now, arm or yeah. leg. And, and again, if you're not able to get hundred percent occlusion, you're probably missing the boat. And, and we, we've seen from a recent paper, Doppler on a superficial artery is not capturing the whole picture either. Yeah. 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 You you, got to kind of, you know, be able to compress through all the tissue. um, Down to the deep vessels. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you're going to measure blood flow, you need to be measuring it at the distal aspect of the limb. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that looks like best practice. If we're going to do this now, let's go into what do we know for performance? Some studies that have shown us some some good stuff, maybe not some good stuff. Yeah, so I, I think, um, yeah, <laughs> yes. that, that's the thing. And, you know, I mean, there was just a paper put out today that, you know, or recently that shows for performance, it's, it's a pretty mixed bag, right? I think, you know, the thing of it is, is it really goes back to what you're trying to manipulate. Again, um, I think the more your activity biases higher threshold motor units, you're going to have a smaller carryover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more aerobic your activity is, the better um, carryover you're going to get. Um, the systematic review that uh, w- was looked at, I want to say the effect size was about a 0.5 um, for aerobic activities. Um, and then it just decreases from there to anaerobic strength-based activities and then no effect whatsoever. Um, at explosive strength yeah, or explosive activities. And, and um, they define that really, I mean, an easy way to think of it is anything under 90 seconds is anaerobic versus aerobic. So, yeah. And one of the, one of the really good um, aerobic papers out there was a 5k time trial subject served as their own control. There was 13 individuals and they, they either did their 5k time trial um, first with IPC or without. Um, and once all the trials were done, um, they were separated by a week. There was about um, the, when IPC preceded the 5K time trial, there was a 34 second decrease in running time. So that's, that's a pretty huge drop amongst individuals serving as their own control over three miles. Um, that, that's a pretty good improvement. Yeah. Um, and then also what they actually found there as well was there was sign or there was a lower um, lactate concentration as well um, when uh, IPC preceded the five k time trial. Um, so uh, and then uh, moving from aerobic into more anaerobic, um, one of the most notable papers was with national level swimmers uh, swimming a hundred meter um, uh, sprints. Uh, again, they served as their own control. Uh, IPC consisted of three bouts of five minutes of ischemia, five minutes, three perfusion. Um, and then, uh, or I'm sorry, four bouts of five minutes of ischemia, five minutes, three perfusion. 
And then on average, when that 100 meters um, swim was preceded by IPC, there was a seven tenths of a second decrease in their 100 meter sprint time. Yeah. Which is. That's huge. Um, yeah, that, that's that's a really huge. Um, I they reference in the paper to another study that shows that that would take about two years of training to yeah. accomplish. Yeah, I know. So that that's just how impressive that is. They showed like the when they did the sham or the control, their scores, their time trial or their swim numbers were yeah. almost exactly the same of what their numbers were. What, that's like what their best I, was. Yeah, well, that's like how dialed in they are normally. Like their numbers almost never change. Yeah. They did the IPC. I mean, there were some, and then we can talk about this, responders versus non-responders. But there were some responders that were almost like two to three seconds improved in those of those subjects, right. which was huge. I mean, they were like, that was almost like, they would almost catch Michael Phelps um, if, if they had the, those same scores. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, you know, to, to take a look and say, you know, these are national level athletes. So these aren't like, you know, people like me out there who's just jumping in the pool. Um, th these are pretty legit uh, individuals. How deep does that pool have to be for you, Zach? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's rough. Oh, yeah. Hey, it was getting a little too heavy for me, man. I had to lighten it up. You know, you said jumping in the pool. I'm thinking jump in just like the middle of it and be good. Do I need you – know? I'll, I'll send you the Juan Soto GIF again, okay? Going <laughs> <laughs> to Soto shuffle, all right? I'm going to watch him GIFing all over the place pretty soon. So let, I'm going to talk a little bit more about performance. Um, yeah. Again, very easy to do. You know, you get this within that two hour window. You know, most of the studies, they do this within 10 to 15 minutes before the intervention, it seems like. I also want to point out that Coxley, I gotta be careful how I say it, or cocking. Um, I'm not saying cockering, cocking study. Um, the other question you get asked is where do you have to put it? Um, does that have to be on the arms or leg? Well, probably anywhere, but maybe the amount of muscle blood volume matters. But they, they did show that one had a, one tourniquet had a higher effect than two tourniquets. Um, huh. So you don't always have to do bilateral, it looks like, even unilateral might be superior. And that's mixed, um, but they did find that in their study. I don't know if you guys have seen yeah, it. I haven't noticed that before, but it's, um, yeah, it seems like, and this is mainly from, you know, reading through some of these papers and looking at their reviews, the, we can say the most common commonly talked about benefit for performance is going to be the time to exhaustion mm -hmm. as far as a measure. I mean, it's, uh, seems like that. Plus, you know, Zach, you mentioned the, you know, energy substrate, the, you know, or the lactate buildup afterward. Um, yeah. So seems like from an endurance standpoint that having that longer time to exhaustion, maybe a higher peak power, a little longer maintenance of, of power, things like that. Yeah. I think I think one of the other things is it maybe depends on the activity that you're doing and, and what's being measured, um, because some of, you know, what we're trying to look at here is the extraction of well, we're looking at blood flow and then we're looking at the extraction of oxygen. And so. I don't know if we have an on or an, an on condition limb, if they're going to have basically the same flow mediated dilation of blood flow into that limb and then have the same um, increase in extraction of oxygen as the conditioned limb does. Um, so 
uh, and that's they they showed that in the um, the one our strength training uh, study um, from uh, Paradis and Deschens, and they they uh, looked at ten strength trained individuals. Um, doing an isokinetic um, knee extensions and they only conditioned one limb and it was the limb that they trained. Um, but they showed um, peak force increased by about 12% and then average force was increased by 12.5%. Uh, but they contributed that to an increase in perfusion um, at rest by about 46.5%. And then there was also over uh, a 15.5% increase in um oxygen uptake as well so again I, I think you know looking at that it may be dependent on you know what you're trying to do mm-hmm. but uh i i tend to think that bilateral is a little bit better than um unilateral yeah still be to determine but if you can do it definitely probably that's the safest way to go about it to get the effect so let's talk about this um and, and i think one of a really a good paper that jamie burr's group put out recently was this that okay everyone who's getting ipc in these studies knows they're getting ipc so you've already got a placebo you know because a lot of these studies are you know you serve as your own control so one day they're going to put a tourniquet on you take it you know you're going to full occlusion and then you do a, a test to see if it improves your performance and then you come in and they're like they put a tourniquet on and they they barely inflate it and you do a test. And so you've already biased it to they know what the intervention is, right? So this nocebo effect. Um, so have you guys kind of read Jamie's, that, that study that he's done? With yeah, it was fascinating. It's very interesting. I, I, I love their, their, their sham protocol. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ultrasound and, yeah. and the, the, it lit, lights up and it looks like it's working, but there's nothing it's happening. Not, which is basically <laughs> is all you need from that's, ultrasound. That, that's pretty much what you need. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically what they looked at was, okay, well, let's take that bias out and let's not tell the subjects what we're doing. Um, we're just going to do these things to them and ask them which one they think is going to improve performance. So one round was they didn't get do anything and they tested their performance. And it was a it was a cycling graded cycle test, and it didn't improve. The second round, they did ultrasound on both limbs without the machine turned on, but it was making noises like it was on, and it didn't improve performance. The third round is they did IPC, and it significantly improved their cycling um, uh, time to exhaustion tests. And what was the best part they did of the study? was they asked the subjects after each intervention, before they did the test, which one of these things is gonna make you do better? Um, doing the ultrasound, which people think is gonna increase their blood flow, doing nothing or putting a tourniquet on you and taking it up to full inflation. All the subjects said the ultrasound was gonna make them do better. They all said the tourniquet taking the blood out of their limb was gonna make them do worse. Um, right. the exact opposite when the study was done. Um, so that was a nice, maybe put the, put a nice nail in the coffin of, okay, yeah, it's just a placebo because people know yeah. in these studies it's being done to them. Yeah, that was I think the other important study. part of that, what's that? Uh, that was just a clever study. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's super cool. Yeah. And also speaks to what people think about ultrasound, you know, just in general, <laughs> right. the general public, you know. Right. I would say the other important part of that was it was at LOP. It was full occlusion. Yeah. yeah. 
It was an individualized yeah. so, protocol. Yeah, yeah. And they use Delphi. And, and luckily, the Delphi systems we use have this IPC protocol in it. Three rounds for five minutes on, five minutes off. You just push the button and it'll do it and monitor the blood flow for us. Um, so it's pretty nice and straightforward. Okay, so let's kind of wrap up performance unless you guys have any other studies you want to talk about. Three rounds, five minutes on, five minutes off. To improve performance right now, it looks like probably before the event um, and, and mixed bag right now. Most of the studies have shown the best benefits in just um, healthy individuals. It's, it's been a little bit tougher to find in the elite athletes, although like you said, um, these elite swimmers and, and, the, and the runners, um, we have seen some positive results, right? Okay. Yeah. What about recovery? Um, <laughs> thoughts on that, and I use that term. Um, but doing this to maybe blunt muscle damage. Y'all want to talk about some of those studies? Sure. Yeah. Kind of seems like you could do it before or after from, from what's there. Right. So but that was. But Steven Patterson's study was after, right? Yep. yep. So, okay. That one was 300 box jumps. hundred. hundred. Five rounds. hundred. hundred. Yeah. 200 no, eccentric loadings to the quad. Yeah, three eccentric loads to the quad. So 300 eccentric loads no. through 100 no, 200. Two, 200. So they did five sets of 20 and Drop then jumps. Depth, depth jumps, which translated to 200 loadings, eccentric contractions to the quad. Oh, okay. I thought that he made them do a, a, a jump once they landed. So they jumped off, they landed, and they jumped in the air. Yeah. Right. right. So that's two that, per jump and they oh, did yeah, yeah. 100. 100 drop jumps. No. You, and, you and Kyle are having or math. Johnny, it's all right, man. <laughs> all right. Don't worry. It's math. You don't have to so do So the point of the study was <laughs> to basically good. destroy the subject's quads. Um, yes. So it was an evil study. And what, what Stephen wanted to see was could they block muscle damage by putting tourniquets on afterwards, right? Right. So did and, – and it's been a while since I've read Stephen's study – Three rounds of five minutes, five minutes on, five minutes off. At 220, yeah. alternating legs. Yeah. Yep. He did use a wide um, Delphi tourniquet, so 220 was probably better than using a blood pressure cuff. Um, but right. to say you want to make this better, we would have said use LOP um, and significantly blunted um, muscle damage. Do you guys remember what the measures were on that? They did yeah, some serial blood draws to look at creatine kinase and yeah. looking at, especially 48 and 72 hours afterward, it was a significant difference between IPC and the control group. And then they also looked at, at return of strength, which was a very significant difference. You know, you look at both right afterward and, and they're both pretty smoked. And then you start to see this separation at 24 hours where the IPC group's kind of trending back up and the control group's still kind of trending down at that point. Yeah. Uh, and then 48 hours, 48 and 72 hours, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 48, it looks like IPC is getting pretty close to fully recovered. 72 hours, you can say they're recovered where the control group's still down on strength. Yeah. And DOMS was significantly higher in the control group, obviously. Right. Right. So just by laying there and doing your IPC post bad event, it looks like there was a blunting of muscle damage through blood draw. So creatine kinase was significantly down. So that's a good marker. DOMS was significantly down. That's a valid um, um, indirect marker. And performance was almost back 
to baseline at 48 hours where the control group was still significantly smoked. Um, and Chris Beaven kind of repeated it um, in a different kind of trial and also showed improvement in strength and sprint times as well by doing after you do something bad, like a bunch of really hard sprints, just after the event, you get IPC on. So that's a different way to skin the cat with this is doing this for recovery from blunting muscle damage so that the muscle recovers faster if you have a game 48 or 72 hours later. Right. And I know we're seeing that a lot. You know, that was like the whole show in the, during the College World Series, the Arkansas pitcher, when he goes to the bench, he throws on his, his cuff and he's sitting there with it on his arm and he's doing his little squeeze exercises. Um, we know those guys, you know, is trying to, to blunt the muscle damage of the arm so he recovers quicker. You guys have any thoughts on that as a, as a protocol? seems to be really effective from the research that's there and what we've heard anecdotally. And I mean, it's pretty fascinating to me to look at that, you know, ability to blunt some of that muscle damage, you know, whether that's reducing some of that calcium influx or, yeah. you know, it's, you know, to me, remembering what I th thought I learned in school about muscle damage being, you know, from that tension and it's, you know, it's, we're making this muscle damage happen with the lift as opposed to it happening, you know, over a few day period after the lift. Right. Um, or, you know, after the stressful bout, you know, being able to blunt some of that after you've already created the stimulus is, is pretty interesting. And then you look at the animal vapor pseudos, you know, where they have full occlusion on during maximal plantar flexion, eccentric contractions, where they're just trying to destroy the muscle. And when they were at 100% occlusion, basically, it completely spared the muscle from damage. Um, so protein synthesis was up equal in, in mm -hmm. groups, but the muscle damage markers through biopsies was significantly down, or not markers through biopsies, but the muscle damage was significantly down, so it spared the muscle. So I think right. that's also- Those electrical stem papers, they put in a ton of muscle damage too. Like yeah. Yeah. from what I read, it mimics basically if you induce muscle damage chemically, like it's the length of the fiber, it's, yeah. it's huge. It's not like well, just, if you just strain a muscle or you have you muscle damage those, from exercise. It's almost more white Massive. than red. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just, well, and it's, you know, maximal contraction, like you said, and then you're just forcing it through, through an eccentric movement 40 times in that pseudo paper. And that's a- yeah, they had muscle damage out to seven days from the eccentrics. Yeah. Yeah. Substantially more than you would generally see with just an exercise regimen. So that's the, that's the second way, I guess, that you can look at this. We're improving performance by sparing muscle damage for the next event, right? So a lot of these IPC studies are, can you do this and make performance better by doing IPC before for the game? Well, maybe the better kind of papers and, and the better thoughts would be maybe we should just be doing it post game to blunt muscle damage so that they're ready 48, 72 hours later. Um, so I know, I know a lot of the folks we know are, are doing kind of both ways. So that, that's, that's another way I think we're going to start seeing some more work looking at this. I think the other thing then to discuss kind of quickly here is uh, the whole passive so ischemic preconditioning is pretty much known as a passive treatment that you don't do anything. And that's because we took it from the animal world and the cardiac stuff and then all the cardiac papers where it, they were just going into full occlusion. 
but it looks like doing some sort of exercise might enhance the effect, right? You guys agree with that? Yeah. So probably more in, in, would we say maybe more, in, especially in your people that are trained, might be more powerful just because the stimulus is going to need to be a bit higher perhaps. Yeah. I know from some of those performance studies, it looked like, you know, some of some of those that were done on trained people, you might not see quite as big a benefit uh, or they were thought maybe, maybe the trained people were not responders, but again, getting back to methods probably has something to do with that. And then maybe if you add exercise to it. But I, I think what we're, we've seen maybe from, and this is again from Josh's thesis is, um, that it brings the non-responders into the responders um, when yeah. you do that. And, right. and so what, what, what he did in one of, his, one of his studies was they did a control group who did nothing. They did just IPC or they did IPC with STEM or they did IPC with walking. And whenever they did IPC with STEM or walking, that was the only thing that increased their peak power output. Um, IPC by itself didn't. And so, and, and they had more of the subjects that were, looked like they were the non-responders and the IPCs that became responders. So if you want to hedge your bets and not try and figure out, is this person a responder or, or not, is maybe throw eSTEM or something on them um, or have them do some sort of light aerobic exercise or, or light round of, of blood flow restriction type exercise. And it might be this metabolite buildup that you need to have happen. Um, or maybe you get more of this, you know, uh, analgesic kind of receptors that kick in. So that's another thing to, to potentially think about when you're doing this as well. Yeah, and I mean, I, I remember Stephen saying, you know, after your all CSM talk that it seems to always look better with exercise. You know, it's the whole thing of, you know, if you want a bigger effect, it's, it's a bigger stimulus. It's, you know, passive if you have to and exercise if you can. Yeah. That was the thing. You know, if you just have to do passive, then just do it. And sometimes, you know, you get a NBA guy after a game, he might be so smoked that he, there's, he doesn't even want to put stem on. So then you're just following, like, I'm going to try and blunt muscle damage. But if you can have them do something like, like maybe even walk on a treadmill with it, you know, like we were talking, Ben, you know, the interesting thing about Slice's paper is they did 100% limb occlusion pressure. They used the Delphi cuff, so it was at 100%, and they walked. So they were walking at, at full LOP, and right. they all completed it because we know there's just not as much metabolites. You know, in all of our labs, everyone gets through the walking stuff. It's whenever they do the bike at like 80% limb occlusion, they're dying. Yeah. Um, so that might be just such a low stimulus they could handle IPC. 100%. They, they even said slow walking in that study. It was like, I don't know how they, they just said, just walk slowly or I don't know. They didn't really define it, but they did say slow walking. So it's not yeah. like you had to like Go get on there and hit a certain yeah. target pace yeah. or anything. It was just walking, keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of wrap it up. What are y'all's kind of final thoughts on this? And if you were to tell someone today how they would apply this, what would you say? That's kind of the thing that we, we didn't address is, you know, and we get, I feel like I get asked about this because I maybe don't do the best job explaining it whenever we have this little short, you know, explanation in the course of 
do you use this in clinic? And if so, how, you know, it's always kind of going to the recovery performance side. So from a clinical setting, I think, you know, Zach, you always talk about the, the Natsume East M article, maybe being this kind of full occlusion or IPC like stimulus along with the East M. So maybe that's, that's it for this, you know, early post-op, you know, if the intensity is super low, you might need that, you know, full occlusion pressure or close to it. Uh, and otherwise I'd, I'd probably leave it more toward that recovery and performance side for the elite athletes outside of the clinic. Yeah. I wonder, you know, talking through this and thinking about it, I, I wonder like in a situation where someone has an injury uh, or like a muscle strain or something, if you can't just stick this on them like immediately after and get some of this pain relieving response, um, so that they get moving a, a bit quicker. Um, haven't tried it in that manner, but I mean, I've certainly seen that pain relieving response in muscle um, in clinic um, with exercise. So I'm just curious, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Injuries like that, to the, they're, an injury to a muscle isn't an injury to muscle tissue in isolation. You know, right. you've got vascular damage, capillary beds are injured, um, extracellular matrix is injured and maybe even nervous tissue. And so that's where this whole Nobel prize and the gene expression and the HIF-1A activation and, and all these other pathways that we're just still understanding, they might actually be really powerful. Um, and why we're, we're just seeing so much enthusiasm with this. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the big thing is, um, you know, I think everyone looks at the sexy end of it and says, well, how, you know, how can we use this for sport or performance and stuff? But I think in the clinical context is, you know, I, I give it a try with pain relief. You know, you have someone that, um, you know, the, these endocannabinoids, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's acute pain, it's neuropathic pain. It, it's a variety of, of different um, kind of generators of pain that we're trying to target. And so if we can activate it with this, Maybe, you know, I'm not saying it's the end all be all, but maybe it's something that can get them to be more active. Right. Um, and then we can kind of allow them to exercise. And I think that's like the big thing, you know, that, that I would try to, you know, encourage or talk to someone about if they wanted to know how to do it. That's what I would do. Um, and, and kind of go from there. Yeah. And then Seen I, it where, I mean, have used it in that manner, you know, I one two, three different cases of mine, you know, and one in particular, total knee, who I had treated as total knee before, before I had BFR, um, and, and, uh, then used it and we got a good pain relief for him for the next time he came in, which was awesome, you know, yeah. cause he'd been, so he was guys, actually in a bunch of pain. Maybe it was uh, his 48 hour window, right? Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so I think, we, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I think, um, I think a lot of times, We've seen the, the, the physical therapy profession, at least, is on this big pain kick right now. And I'm not going to say, like, pain is, like, the end-all, be-all. But, man, if you can ad address someone's symptoms, address their pain, that's huge for them because, one, it gets buy-in that what you're doing is going to yep. work. And then, two, it allows them to go out and load the tissue and go out and do things through their uh, regular everyday activities. Yep that's going to really kind of foster those long-term changes. And I, I think that's where everything, all this kind of meshes together. Yeah. Yep. But what so I love too is you're maybe getting a pain response, but you're also getting this whole gene expression response. You know, you take an yeah. opiate and you're blocking pain. You do this, you're blocking pain endogenously. 
oh, and by the way, here's all these extra kind of benefits that might come along with it. So you're getting this whole yeah. Yeah, and then, so, and then couple it with the low load exercise with the tourniquet on. And I mean, you know, there we're, we're addressing, we're, we're going to get a, a larger pain response with, with the endogenous opiate spike. And then we're, we're getting a muscle response as well. So yeah. it's kind of a win-win to me. Yeah. I don't even have to ask my question anymore because I was going to ask about, you know, when you guys are talking about using this for pain relief in clinic, is this strictly an IPC application or is this a, a tourniquet plus exercise application? Yeah, typically I, with exercise, you know, East stem. I've done it with passive range just because that's all we could do, you know. Right. Um, and 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 you're limited on time, you know. So some of it is just the time component. It's like, man, how do I get all these things involved? All right, well, I can kind of combine these two, um, and then we can use it in in other ways here. But that in those situations, it's, it's so often it's just like once or twice, and then you're able to move on to something else. It just kind of seems to really kind of help you get over that little hump. So yeah. Well, plus these ICU studies, you know, well, the one that's published, the other one's going on. Yeah. You know, attenuating muscle loss just by having the tourniquet on while you do passive mm -hmm. range. So yeah. Opioid release, maybe also blunting muscle damage or increasing mTOR. We're not sure. Um, and then you can always go back to the first BFR IPC real paper was that 1937 JAMA study. All they did was tourniquet inflations, deflations with people with peripheral arterial disease and in decreased um, claudication symptoms with walking and improved wound healing. All right, man, anything else before we move on to a question we're gonna do this week? Nothing for me. Nope. All right, that was awesome, man. You guys made me smarter for sure. All right, so this question is from Nicole. We took her question because she was so nice and she also said, can I get a t-shirt and buy one even if y'all don't ask my question? So we want to make sure we send her a t-shirt. Uh, anyone that wants a t-shirt that badly, we want her to have it. So I have a question about using BFR for stress injuries. Patient who's a marathon runner is recovering from a pelvic stress injury several months ago. Like a typical runner, she's refused to stop training, so her injury is never healed. Currently, she's not weight bearing on crutches. This is like every trainee um, in the DOD, um, but was cleared to begin PT. I know BFR has been shown to help with bone healing, but I was hoping for some insight on if and how it could benefit a potential or someone with a pelvic stress fracture. What do y'all think? And that's tougher. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot that's tougher. The question of the systemic yeah. effects on bone. Mm -hmm. And just minimizing, you know, reductions in activity, you know, making that person who's not going to stop running, helping them keep active and feel as though they're active. You know, maybe the exercise stimulus that you can give that person is enough to help them let that tissue kind of bounce back a little bit. That's what I would right. say first is there's not a, we don't know systemically, is there a response on bone? So a proximal right. response. We're still learning, is there even a distal response, but we have enough DOD yeah. trials, we should learn that. There's a stress fracture trial going on at Fort Bragg, um, or sorry, West Point. Um, but yeah, exactly what you said, Kyle. Well, if, if these runners, you can never get them to stop, well, BFR will definitely get that lactate junkie to fill lactate. So that's your first mm -hmm. one with them, right? Right. Yep. Where was the fracture at? We don't know. We, we just said pelvic, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say the other thing is you basically have like the myokines and, and, that, and that muscle bone 
um, crosstalk as well, depending on where the fracture is. Um, so if they do tolerate some low level exercise, you know, maybe the, the, the muscle contraction is enough strain on bone on the bone, you know, that, that it's enough to kind of facilitate a little bit of a loading, uh, healing response. Yeah. And if, if nothing else, the win of preservation of what's there in lower extremities, when you can't load the lower extremities, like we were talking about and, you know, having a, a stimulus that's worthwhile there and make her feel like she's getting enough exercise plus you're saving all the muscle. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's the thing, all these stress fractures we had in the DOD, they're basically non weight bearing in going to the pool, you know, or walking in an alter G that was it. And we're just watching their, them get weaker. And, you know, we've seen from the, like the recent Van Loon paper, you know, just one week of decreased activity protein synthesis is down almost 30% and myostatin levels are up three times. So the muscles, as soon as they start to go into disuse, they're losing it. So, yeah. man, I mean, that's why now if, if I have these stress fractures, BFR is like the number one thing I'm going to go to because I, hopefully that's the goal. When the stress fracture heals, you've kept them strong enough by keeping the tourniquet on and have them do exercise when they come to rehab. And if it's a runner, then I'm definitely getting them on some of the endurance protocols, riding the bike with the tourniquet and keeping her VO2 right. up. So, yeah, I, right. I, would, I would be 100%. I would not be worried about it for sure. And I would be like, yeah, yeah. if I can get this person in, hell yeah, they're coming in and they're doing this. Because I want the bone to heal and I want their muscle to be ready that they can go right into loading um, as soon as that bone shows that it's healed. And I'm not waiting to try and get the strength back. Yeah, right. that, that would be, you know, my, I think my approach as well is at least ride the bike, do something along those lines. And then whatever leg exercises you, you could do, I'd, I'd do them. Hell yeah. Johnny, I know, I mean, kind of taking this away from BFR a little bit, but just sort of thinking about that case. Then the other side of that coin is to kind of facilitate that bone healing. We need, we kind of need some impact, right? Um, and maybe the part of the problem is this, repeated impact of jogging and maybe that impact should be um, shorter in duration but maybe higher in intensity so like at what point you know do you start moving toward that and then how often that kind of thing dosing that I you guys dealt with that probably more than anyone has you know with your limb salvage stuff where would you go well and that's the problem so she's not healing but it's because it sounds like she didn't stop Right. So then they went the other end of the spectrum and now she's non-weight bearing, which that doesn't help bone at all. So right. you've got to find the middle ground. And, and so we have Dan Stinner has a, a metric trial right now with immediate weight bearing and all disease with, with pretty much all lower extremity fractures. Um, Cause we're like bone needs stress, man. Just the, the freaking surgeries are strong enough. You know, what are you afraid of? So we, we, from our perspective, and seeing tons of bone injuries, yeah, it's graded loading and started, and, and we're talking intraarticulars and everything. We get them moving and, and weight bearing right off the bat. Now we're not going full weight bearing; we're progressing it um, as much as we can. But as long as we're not seeing that we're causing frank fractures, um, we're not worried about it. And we, the only, the number one thing we let was pain be our guide. That was it. That's our orthopedic guidance was pain be your guide, man. If if they're tolerating it. And pain is basically like if, if they come back 24 or 48 hours and, and they're worse, you pushed it too hard. If they have a little pain while they're doing it, don't worry about it. Yeah. Just slowly keep it going and track your 
track your distances and increase it a little bit each time and increase load over time. All right. Cool. cool. That's a good question, Nicole. We'll send you a shirt. Make sure you get our uh, Tori will reach out and, and get shirt size for you. You know, we haven't had Tori like doing our podcast anymore. She got real sick of listening to these for two hours. So uh, <laughs> we were giving her crap today. So. All right, man. That was awesome. Any parting thoughts, anybody? Go Strohs. Go Strohs. Go Strohs. You know, I got a, you know, I got friends on both sides. Um, yeah. We're working it. I think we might have a, a BFR um, baseball World Series with the, I've got the Nats guys on, so I, I got, I haven't bothered the Strohs yet. I don't, I don't want to bug them, but as soon as the series is over, maybe we get the two, to, the two medical staffs from both sides to come on and tell us what they're doing. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right, guys. Good night. I'm going to go have a beer. All right. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PCs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.